0: Hello and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. Well the story of God. We're nearing the conclusion of a series we started back in December when we started the story and then we continue through the story crasher as we see Jesus crashing into the story of scripture, his birth, then his life and resurrection. And and where it has led, last week my wife shared for Mother's Day how our story crashed with the death of our son and how in that moment Jesus comes into our crash story. He, he crashes our story and he comes in and, and gives us something unexpected where, where there was death we, we began to feel hope. But we're following this storyline of the story crash or how Jesus' birth, his life and his death and resurrection come crashing into the story of humanity. I love that video, which we've shown a couple of times throughout this series to remind us that the whole of the Bible is not separate stories, but one long story, his story. I love how the Erdman's commentary uh, on the companion to the Bible says it this way, and I quote, why should we study the Bible at all? What is it about the Bible that demands our attention just as it did hundreds of generations before us? The answer is surprisingly simple. We should study the Bible because it introduces us to God. Indeed, God is its leading character. Most of the Bible consists of narratives starring God. Thus, the Bible is not simply another version of humankind's age-old search for God, but the account of God's own story. The report of God's persistent search for us. Put differently, the Bible's narrative history is essentially his story. The great story that underlies all of human history. The story that ultimately gives history a purpose. We've said throughout our series that the story of God is this, that he would redeem for himself a people that would be his very own. He would not share us. And that plot line is important because where does the story go? Where does it end? This is important. Just as in any story that you read, any movie that you watch that you find yourself engaged in. You engage because the plot grabs at you and promises to take you somewhere and bring conclusion. I am not one of those guys who likes conclusions that leave you with some sort of cliffhanger. I, I like series that kind of drag me along And how many of you have ever gotten the TV show Lost or any series of movies that you have to wait till the next installment? You know that feeling, but there's this promise that it's going somewhere. And it is with Scripture. It is with all of history that it is going somewhere, and the plot line is important. Jesus comes to earth, and through his teachings, he begins to teach his disciples that he's about to leave. He's about to leave this part of the story. And he leaves them some instruction, but he promises to return, and that's an important matter. In the book of Revelation, which we'll somewhat reference this morning, although this is not a, a, uh, a survey of the book of Revelation, the words of Jesus in Revelations 22, verse 12 through 13 says this, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I like that, that last verse, I am the Alpha, Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. These are words that describe the author who was there at the beginning of time in creation. Jesus was standing there. And he's going to be standing at the end, and as the video portrayed, that it will all come round about the way it was at the beginning, that God dwelt with man. And so we will go back to the way creation was intended. Everything will be reset. Be giving a new start. The story crasher is promising to once again crash the story. And I can believe this. I can believe this for a number of reasons. One, the whole of the story is about God's faithfulness and his promises. The Bible is full of the stories of God's faithfulness and his promises and how he fulfills them. The prophecy of Scripture that was fulfilled in Christ's first coming came true. It tells me that God can be trusted in what he's promising us to do in the future, I can believe that he's coming back because I believe in Jesus as the son of God and the savior of the world. Therefore, if he tells me he's coming back, he can be trusted. I believe in a real heaven and a real hell. And therefore, I believe that Jesus is coming back to make true on his promise to rescue. I believe each one of us will be judged according to our decision to accept or reject Christ. I believe that Jesus is coming back to set things right to bring justice, which we all long for, to bring righteousness and truth and wholeness to our brokenness. The story has to have an ending. And not just an, any ending, but an unexpected one. I love those books that, that promise you an ending and you think you see where it's going. And try you, How many of you try to predict the ending, right? My wife doesn't like watching movies with me because I'll lean over and go, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's the bad guy, he did it. And I'm usually right. Don't shake your head. I'm usually right. But I love when it twists on me. I love when it takes me somewhere unexpected or or comes in an unexpected way, at an unexpected time in the story. But the story has to have an ending, one with resolution. Because this is what we long for. We don't we don't like uncompleted stories. We long for completion. We long for resolution. Jesus in his last teaching recorded in Matthew chapter 24, his last teaching before he goes to the cross, before the time of the passion. Matthew chapter 24, if you have a scripture, you can open to that. If you have a smart device, you can turn on the YouVersion app and follow along with our live uh, notes or dial in Matthew chapter 24. In the live notes, I actually was able to put in some of the extra notes here for you to follow along with as well. But Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is kind of giving his last dissertation to his disciples. He's given them all sorts of teachings, and now he's going to kind of give them this last little nugget about what the end times are going to be like. And so starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 24, says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. He says, they say, do you see all these things? Or he says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. It's interesting that no one can know the times or the dates. This is basically what Jesus is t- saying to his disciples. Now, if you received our weekly update uh, by email, there was a promotion that said, I will announce the time or the date that Jesus is coming back. We were totally lying to you just to get you to come to church today. But isn't it funny how interested you become when someone says, I know when Jesus is back? I know how to predict all these things. I can tell you when. Well, I'm pretty sure I could probably figure it out. He's going to come back sometime at night or maybe the daytime. He's going to come back next year, and if he doesn't, it might be the year following. You know, it's easy to get caught up in all that. I remember back in 1988, there was this big book that was very popular called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Back in 1988. And in 89, the author put out a new book, which wasn't quite as popular, I don't imagine why, that said, I got it wrong, I missed something. There's now 89 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 89. And we can get caught up in all these things of trying to predict and, and read the signs of the times, but I don't know. But the Bible clearly states that no one knows. But it is clear that Jesus is coming back and I should get ready. In my study, I found this paragraph that was helpful. Many people have spent a lot of time reading throughout the prophetic writings found in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, trying to decipher scripture and current events to predict when Jesus will return. These scriptures, full of apocryphal writing and full of imagery and prophecy. Yet this discourse in Matthew chapter 24 by Jesus was intended not to gratify the curiosity of his disciples, but to guide their consciences and conversations. And it is therefore concluded with practical application. What Jesus was telling his disciples was not, here here are 10 things that you need to know so you can predict when I come back. He's saying, all these things are coming. I'm warning you so you'll be ready when they do come. So you need to be ready. And he goes on to tell them to be ready. Now I want to give you a real quick overview of What's going to happen at the end of time? Write it down. You can make a best-selling book out of these four points. This is what we believe to be true. There are many who believe a little bit differently, but what I love about the Christian church is we can believe in some of these, uh, what I would say, not um, core beliefs. We believe that Jesus is coming back. That's a core belief. How he will come back is up to some interpretation. So I'm going to give you what my best interpretation of those things are. I fully accept that I am totally right. But if I'm wrong, I'm just gonna go whenever he comes back and then I'll tell you I was wrong in heaven. But I believe in the rapture, what, we've, what we refer to as the rapture, the blessed hope. You won't find the, the word rapture in your scripture. What you will find is clues about the rapture and, and what we would refer to as the blessed hope of believers. That Jesus is coming back First, for those who have declared him as their Lord and Savior. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 says this. Uh, I'm going to start a few verses before. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that all uh, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep Paul here was writing to the uh, church in Thessalonians to remind them and give them hope that don't worry about those who have died. Jesus knows where they are. He, he, he's able to raise them up. Uh, and, and, and we're not gonna actually go before them, so don't, don't worry. He's trying to encourage them. And then he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. That phrase will be caught up is sort of this word rapture. We'll be caught up with the Lord in the air. This is a belief that many of us hold dear to that before the tribulation and great tribulation spoke of in Daniel and Revelation that believers will be saved from that wrath of God for they've made their decision. Oftentimes in, in discourses of whether Jesus is coming before the rapture or after the rapture, indeed if the rapture is actually going to happen, I often remind myself that that there are believers throughout the world who believe that Jesus is coming back and endure persecution no matter what. But I'm thankful for the promise of Scripture that we have hope in Jesus. So the rapture comes, believers, both dead and alive, are caught up with Jesus in the air. We're taken to heaven, where we then face the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment seat of salvation. You get to go in that first, uh, it, it's kind of like the first people out on the airplane at this point. You are judged according to your deeds. As a believer, if you believe in Jesus, you've accepted him as Lord and Savior of your life, you are then judged by Christ according to your deeds, to your works, to the things that you've done while you were here on earth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Then there's a celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great picture of a feast, a celebration found in Revelation chapter 19. And then during this time, the tribulation and the great tribulation occur on earth. You can read some of that throughout the book uh, towards the end of Revelation as it begins to describe all of these end time events. Now, Revelation and Daniel both give us a lot of imagery, beasts with horns and arms and all sorts of things that, while I take the Bible literally, I have to read some of those things as imagery, simply a description by the person having the vision of what they are seeing. Perhaps it's exactly as it's described or perhaps he's describing something that he has no knowledge of and so he simply is comparing it to something that he he has knowledge of. Either way, it's described throughout Revelation. It's wondrous. It, It should cause us, our hearts, to be stirred, but it should not lead us to be distracted to try to predict or to get caught up in understanding completely all the things that weren't meant necessarily for us to have complete understanding of. But it's after this time, after the tribulation and the great tribulation, that Christ then comes, what we would refer to as his second coming, where he actually sets foot, physically sets foot on earth, on the Mount of Olives. Where he departed, he will return. Remember the promise to the disciples when they watched Jesus go up into the air. The promise was given to them that as you've seen him go, he will come back the same way. And this time, when he comes, he's bringing all of us with him. There will be a mighty war. If you've ever heard of Armageddon, yeah, the movie, exactly. The, the battle described here is a battle of epic proportion of good and evil, of the seen and the unseen, of the spiritual and the physical. At this point, there is no separation. What is unseen will be seen, and there will be a mighty battle. What is described is, is incredible, and it happens in the Valley of Megiddo, which is where we get the word Armageddon. I've been to the Valley of Megiddo. It's a very large place. It's been a strategic place for generations. There are four roads that basically allow you to converge on this one valley, and if you wanted to go anywhere in that part of the world at that time you had to pass through there and strategically if you if you held that spot you you could control that whole area of the world and so here this battle will take place christ will of course reign in victory over that battle there will be a thousand years of world peace where jesus takes his rightful place as king we've described him as the king the the scripture describes jesus as the king this is where he actually reigns as king In peace, complete harmony. Many of you parents are just dying for something like that in your own house. Complete peace. We will know that in that time. We call it the millennial. The millennial reign of Christ. And at the end of that, Satan is is released one more time. He's allowed, he's given permission to try to deceive those who've been born during this peaceful period who've only known of Christ as king, even then they'll be, he will allow Satan to try to deceive people. It will ultimately show that humanity still is wayward. But Christ again will be victorious. He will banish Satan forever. And at the end of that, all people will be judged on salvation. Those who, who are dead will be judged according to their belief in Christ, their acceptance or rejection of him. And the new heaven and the new earth will then come down the bible sort of describes this event but at that point all things are made new and that's the great promise that the very things that that cause you frustration uh, the cry for justice in this world in that moment will be set right again everything will be made as it were to as it was to be so what does jesus say he says keep watch He says, in the scripture we just previously read, he said, the things that you you hear about, the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and and the things, as things get worse, he says, this is just the beginning of birth pains. I have no idea what that means. Seriously, I've never given birth. But I do understand the process of birth. I I was there. I remember when the pain started, for, for one of our kids, it started weeks ahead of time. And the pains, as I was told, grew with frequency and intensity. We knew that the time of the birth was coming. We just wouldn't know when. We just paid attention to the signs. And the pain was there and it grew and it grew and eventually the, the water breaks. If, if you're not married or you don't know what that means, talk to a, a professional. They'll explain it to you. We knew it's time to go to the hospital, and then you go through that, and some, some of you have gone through some very intense labors for hours. Some of you for 48, 72 hours. Some of you for like 30 minutes. And my wife is just disgusted with you. But this is what Jesus was saying you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And, and as believers, we understand that things only get worse. That persecution, it says, will come against those who believe. Again, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples. And so many times we hear of things that we should be uh, causing us to be worried. How many of you have followed the blood moons and, and some of the predictions and prophecies about that? I mean, it could suck up a lot of your time. And you begin to read all these things and I think, I often wonder how much time do we, we supplant reading of Scripture to read what someone thinks about what might be going on in the stars to predict what, when Jesus is coming back. But Jesus is coming back and I better be ready. And he says this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. When you look at that passage of Scripture, we won't read the whole thing this morning, but I'm going to give you an overview quickly of what he's basically saying. When he tells us to be ready... Which he says in in chapter 24, when he finishes his discourse, he says, be ready. You need to be ready. And in 25, he gives a few examples of what being ready looks like. And he gives, in the beginning of chapter 25 in Matthew, he gives the story of the bridegroom coming. We don't really have a, a great understanding in our, in our own culture of what this is like, but in ancient Jewish culture, the groom would actually go away for a year to some, some far off place or somewhere near, but he would go and he would be preparing a place for him and his new bride to live. Sometimes it was, a, it was uh, on his father's property or attached to the father's property, and he would spend this year building and preparing this place. During that year, he would also, the, the dowry would be exchanged. There would be this negotiation for the price of the bride. Many of you are like, wow, how does that work? <laughs> there was a price paid. And the length of time that it took to negotiate was of importance. If it was too short, it meant that the bride was probably not of much value. But if there was time, if there was was a length of negotiation, it spoke to the great value of this bride. Jesus paid that price in his own blood. And there's a time of negotiation, a time of preparation for us all, for the bride to get ready. And in this story, it talks of a a bridal party that is, is anticipating and waiting the return of the bridegroom for him to come back. At an unexpected time, though they know he's coming, they're not sure when. And it says that they have their torches ready in case he comes at night. And it says, there are five wise and five unwise. It says virgins or young women, unmarried ladies in the scripture. The five wise ones have their torches ready. They have plenty of oil to make sure that they can light that torch. But there's five who are unwise. They're, they're not prepared. They're not ready. And so when the bridegroom comes, and there was always an announcement of his coming, There was someone who ran ahead to to prepare the bride and and her party. It says that they find five of them unready. They don't have the proper uh, preparations done. They wouldn't have enough oil. And so those five are saying to the wise, can you give us some of your oil? And, And those five who are wise say, we can't. You need to go find your own oil, and, and then you can come. But at that point, it would be too late. What is this storytelling saying to us? It says that salvation comes to those who are ready. When the day comes, it will be too late to say, wait, 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 I, I, I've heard of Jesus. I, I just never made a decision. I, I've, I've heard the stories. I just never lived it out. I never quite got to that point where I trusted him. And Jesus said his own words were, I go to prepare a place for you. Some of you who have read scripture, you remember these words. Jesus saying to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. But I am going and someday I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. And Thomas says, "Well, Lord," or Philip says, I, how, Lord, how do we know the way? Where, how in the world are we going to get there? Show us the way. And then Jesus says, this is John, the book of John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and it's all through this, this bridal party story that Jesus is revealing his will and his plan. He says, I'm going, but when I come back, you need to be ready. So for my life, I want to be ready. If that means I die before Jesus comes back, I'm still ready. If he returns I'm still ready. My grandmother used to always say, she would say stuff like this. She would say, hey, uh, I can't wait to see you this summer when you come to my house. And then she would end the sentence. Many of you know how they would end the sentence. Do you know? If Jesus tarries. As a young kid, I never knew what that meant. If Jesus tarries. What, what does that mean? She was saying, I'm making my plans to live life and prepare to, to go about my business but I'm fully ready for Jesus to come and crash the story and come back for me. So I look forward to doing what I'm planning on doing, uh, but if Jesus comes, I'm going to do that instead. So I look forward to you coming to my house this summer, but if Jesus comes back, I won't be here, so there's a pie in the oven. <laughs> I was always worried that Jesus would come back, right, and, and I, I would miss it. I was always worried. I remember waking up one Saturday morning and I walked upstairs and the house was empty and I thought, no big deal. Maybe they're upstairs in the, in the top floor. So I went upstairs and nobody was there. Oh, you, you ever have that feeling? I was so worried. So I, I quit. got on the phone and, 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 I, and I called my friend and he answered and I thought, well, that's no good. If you're still here, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I thought if I call my grandmother, if she answers, we're okay. So I called my grandmother. She answered. She said, "Is everything all right?" I said, "Yes, it is now. You're you're home. You're here." And she said, what do you, "Where did you think I got?" I said, "I thought Jesus might have come back, but you're still here. So that's a good sign. He hasn't come back yet." It's this belief. That, that not only does God exist, but that I can trust him, and he's coming back for me, and I must be ready. I've seen people in Missouri get ready. I think of every storm prediction in the winter. The shelves in, in Walmart and Hy-Vee are laid bare. People are walking out with as much beer as they can carry. I'm thinking, what are you getting ready for? Don't worry about the shovels and salt. Have plenty of beer, right? But it's that same concept when the weatherman, as inaccurate as they are, we still take them at their word. Why? Just in case. Don't we? We make the preparations. Those of you who are planners, you always have your pantry completely stocked. You're not even worried if they predict a storm because you got it all there anyway. You buy salt in the middle of summer just in case. I love those type of people, but there's two parts to being ready. Jesus says there's a couple parts. You got to be watching, and you got to be working. You got to be watching, and you got to be working. It, throughout this discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, he he says something to the effect of, "There it will come like a thief in the night. It will come in an unexpected hour. And if a, if, if the man of the home knew what time the thief would break in and rob him, he would be ready." And then he goes on to say, it will be like a time where two men are walking, one will be taken and one will not. Two women working in the field and one will be taken, one will not. And he's talking about this idea of watching. And I think, if they're both doing the same thing, who's watching? It's the idea of the attitude, not the action. The action of watching, people have come to believe is I, I track all the prophecies, I look at current events, and I begin to say, okay, you know, uh, George Bush, Barack Obama, whoever the president, his name added up to these numbers in the Greek letters, and it's 666, and oh, that's the antichrist, and all these weird things that, that may or may not be true, and we waste all our time trying to keep up with the action of watching rather than the attitude of watching. The attitude of watching is, you could compare it to what in Ezekiel chapter 3 when it talks about the watchman. The watchman on the walls was responsible for the safety of the city. They would stand on the towers of the walls around the city and they would look out to the horizon to see if there was dust, to see if there was anything that would give them a clue that they were about to be attacked. They were the watchmen. The watchman was in charge of seeing if there was a runner that might be coming to deliver news and he was to yell down for the gate to be opened so the news might be delivered. This is the attitude of watching. When you have the attitude of watching, you're looking at the horizon. You're not looking at predictions, but you're constantly with the attitude saying, it is my job to be prepared and to let everybody know within the sphere of my influence that Jesus is coming back soon. If you have the attitude of watching, you concern yourself not about your own safety or your own eternity, but you think about everybody within the sphere of influence in your city, within your walls, that you would be able to shout to them that Jesus is coming soon and that they need to be ready. We should understand the times that we live in for sure. We should take warning of the things going on in our world But the task of the watcher is not to predict, but simply to warn and prepare. Jesus is coming, and not only should I be ready, but I should make preparation that those around me would be ready for eternity as well. I should be working. If Revelation 22, Jesus' own word says, I'm coming quickly. And I come with a reward in my hand, a reward every person for what they have done. This is beyond Accepting and rejecting Christ. When Jesus comes back, this judgment seat of Christ, we will be weighed for what we have done for Christ in this world. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of this. Paul talks about a foundation that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, and this is what they referred to it in, in the New Testament, they just referred to it as the day. It's the day when Jesus comes back. It will bring it to light if, and it will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss yet will be saved even though only as escaping through the flames. There's this idea that what I do on this earth matters. And as a believer, how I invest my time, my energy, my resources, my passion, it matters. And one day, you will stand before Christ himself, and he won't determine your salvation, for if you're standing in front of him, you will be saved already. He will then measure out your reward. And all the things that we thought would matter in this world will be put to the fire. And only eternal things Will last. Matthew chapter twenty four, part of that discourse, Jesus says uh, something about a faithful servant who's put in charge of the other servants while the master's away, and it says if 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 that servant is faithful and wise, he will feed the other servants at the proper time. And I, I always skipped over that verse because it was kind of confusing and I have a short attention span and so I just kind of whizzed through it onto the other stuff. But when you read that, when it talks about feeding the other servants at the proper time, the faithful servant who's been put in charge is the one who basically gets keys to the pantry where all the food is. And that servant is in charge of making sure food is served to all the other servants who are equals at this point. We are those servants. Band, would you come as we close? We are those servants who have been put in charge of the food. What is the food? Jesus himself refers to himself as the bread of life. That he who eats of me will never grow hungry. And we, if you are a believer in Christ, you sit here this morning and say, I'm a Christian. You are the one in charge of feeding those who are on the equal playing field. It doesn't matter if they believe in Christ yet, because that's who you're trying to feed. You're trying to feed those who are spiritually hungry, the food of Christ. Matthew 25 goes on to talk about uh, a parable of talents. Each one of us has been given so much, so many talents or resources, and that will be judged according to how we use those talents. And then at the end of 25, it talks about Jesus separating out the sheep and the goats. It's this idea of those who've been faithful with what they've been given and there's no excuse at this point he says to the one group of people the sheep he says i was hungry you fed me i was naked you clothed me i was in prison you visited me i was in the hospital and you came and comforted me and they say when, when should we do all these things and he says whenever you did it to the least you were doing it to me and the other crowd, he refers to as the goats, he says the same thing, except he says, I was, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And they say, Jesus, when were you naked? We, would have, we probably would have remembered that. He says, when you didn't do it to the least, you didn't do it to me. He says, away with you. You are without excuse. Church, this morning, the words that he speaks to those sheep He says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. At the end of your life, when you stand before Christ, or if he tarries, or he comes back, and you stand before him on that day, would he say those words to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. You did well with what I gave you. Your time, your talent, your resources, your treasures. You stored up in heaven things that could not be stored up on earth. What will he say to you on that day? That's the question. And if you find yourself this morning, say, I, I don't know Jesus the like I should, then th- this is your morning to get ready. To simply say to Jesus, I accept you on your terms, not my terms. I believe that you're coming back and I ask you into my life. Would you stand with, with me this morning as I bless you? Perhaps this week you will ask yourself those questions, Am I being a good and faithful servant with what I've been given? Father, this morning, bless your people as they go from this place to do your will. That your will is not hidden somewhere, it's, it's not meant to be confusing, but as they go about the business of their life, they're doing it to glorify your name and to proclaim salvation found only in you. Thank you for this great hope that we have in you, this great promise of something greater than our lives. The very purpose we've been put on this earth. Bless your people today. And for those who are far from you today, you are drawing them back. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, we are so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information about a deeper relationship with Christ, we would love to hear from you. Simply email steps at c2church.com.